the message, what about the Trinity? This is part three. The mystery of the Trinity, as we have said, um, is something that um, we cannot understand to its full end without um, some conflict in mind. We cannot understand it with our rational minds or with human reason alone. It's contrary to reason, yet it's reasonable as God has revealed it. So we always have to keep that balance and to only speak where God speaks and where he doesn't, then we should just be quiet. Um, all three persons of the Trinity are active and act in an interrelated manner with one another for the purpose of God. And so we read the scriptures and we see often uh, two persons within one verse, three persons or just one. And there's always an interrelationship between them. Now listen to Jesus in uh, Luke 10, 22. He says, all things have been delivered to me by my father. And no one knows who the son is except the father and who the father is except the son. And the one whom the son wills to reveal him. So the reason that we believe God's word, whether it's the Trinity or anything else, is because we've been born again. And we've asked Christ to forgive us, and he's made us his children, and we have his spirit in his mind. And so the Holy Spirit illuminates these things and allows us to understand them and accept them. It's not because we're so bright. And John says, he who abides in the doctrines of Christ has both the Father and the Son, Second John one nine. So one of the evidence that you are in Christ and the Father is that you abide in the doctrine of Christ. And you want, you want to make sure you go to the scriptures for that. That you are studying what the Bible teaches in context so that you don't get deceived or you go off on some tangents and weird interpretations. Paul puts it this way. He tells the Romans, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. John, uh, Romans eight ten. So it's simply by the grace of God, even as Paul Ask the Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why are you boasting? And that's the bottom line. Grace through faith. Now, man in his finite existence tries to understand the infinite things of God. In this case, that there are three persons, yet only one God. God is transcendent beyond our finding out. There's a lot of things that he reveals that we don't understand, but at a certain point, some things we, we, we don't understand completely. God is eminent, and he's involved with his creation. He's not detached from it. Uh, if God took a day off, they're, they're going to go to the universe. God is eternal, the only God. And God is spirit and very present at all times. God's attributes are infinite, immutable, they cannot increase or decrease, none can compare to him. God is a God with a compound unity of three persons as we've seen, yet one God. And so we want to look at the third and the last study on what about the Trinity that reveals the nature of the Trinity as found in Scripture. First, the scriptures declare the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are co-equal. Co-equal. Second, the scriptures declare that each person is God. And thirdly, the scriptures declare the purposes 
of the three persons of the Godhead are summed up in one word. One. One. So let's begin with our first point. The scriptures declare that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all co-equal. All three persons of the Trinity are eternal. They had no beginning and are infinite. That's hard for us to understand because we only know things that are born and die and grow and mature and go young to old. And that's the whole cycle of this fallen world. The Father says through Isaiah, I am the first, I am the last. Isaiah 44, 6. John tells us that the Son says, I am the first and the last also. In Revelation 1, 17. The Holy Spirit is called the eternal spirit in Hebrews 9.14. No contradiction. All three persons of the Trinity are omnipresent. They're all present everywhere at the same time. The Father speaking through Jeremiah says the following. Listen in Jeremiah 23.24. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Says the Lord. Matthew records the words of Jesus in Matthew twenty eight twenty. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The psalmist, speaking about the Spirit of God, says this in Psalm 139, verse 7 and 8. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. You ever pick that up? Jesus runs hell, not Satan. Hell's a place of punishment right now. All right? All three persons of the Trinity possess omniscience, all-knowing. They cannot learn anything. They cannot increase. They cannot decrease. That's with immutability, and um, they, they just know. Uh, there's, there's nothing that shocks them, nothing surprises them, nothing is new to them. Uh, again, in our mind, that is something that we can't even fathom. Moses tells us in Deuteronomy, the secret things belong to the Lord Yahweh, our God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The context of that is that God was going to bring Israel back when they apostatized back from captivity. This is in law before they even enter the promised land. <laughs> All right? Paul tells the Colossians that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the Father has made the Son the depository of wisdom and knowledge. We come to Him and through him to get the Father. Paul reminds the Corinthians the following. The Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.10 Jesus spent an entire night before he was betrayed. John 14, 15, and 16 speaking about the Holy Spirit. A personal pronoun. He is a person. And how necessary it was that he would leave or he couldn't come. And he would bring everything to our remembrance and show us and guide us and bring to our mind the things of Christ. Open the scriptures to us. 
Now, all three persons of the Trinity are omnipotent. They're all powerful. There is nothing that would be difficult for any one of the persons of the Godhead. There could be no impossibility or difficulty. Once again, we have problems with that. God the Father told Abraham, I am Almighty God, El Shaddai, Genesis 17.1. All-powerful. Might. John tells us of the multi-identification Jesus calls himself one being, I am the Almighty. Same thing as the Old Testament. When God spoke to Abraham, exact same thing. Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 6, you're familiar with this. Um, he was told by God to uh, the secret of accomplishing the work that he had been called to for uh, returning back and building the temple. He says, not by might nor by power, but by my Holy Spirit, says the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. All-powerful. That work would be done by God through him. And the context is there is the rubble and everything coming back, having to lay the foundation for uh, the uh, temple once again. You have Ezra, you have Zechariah, you have Joshua there. By the Spirit, the earth was shaped. By the Spirit, Christ was conceived. By the Spirit, we are regenerated and renewed. By the Spirit, one day we will be transformed into the exact image of Jesus Christ. All three persons of the Trinity being co-equal were involved in creating all things. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, For us, there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things. The opening verse of Genesis declares, In the beginning, God created, bara, out of nothing, the heavens and the earth. Paul tells the Colossians, Colossians 1.16, By him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, and those are angelic ranks, whether it be good or evil ones. All things were created through him and for him. So he's involved in the creation. John in his gospel declares, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Job, interesting guy, he declares, The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Job 33, verse 4. God gives life, God takes life away. Now we have gotten to the point where our legislators and our politicians and our Congress believe that they are God and that they can um, give a child the right to live even after it comes out of the womb or whether they will kill the child and that they have that right. It's downright murder. 
what's going on now in New York and in a couple other states. It's amazing to me. But when you live without God for a long time as a nation, sooner or later, um, it, it will implode. It, it will come back to the civilization, whichever one it is, because you can't continue down this downward spiral without society imploding. Because pretty soon the only ones that have the right or the power to live are the ones who believe that they're the ones, <laughs> the ones in authority, nobody else. And so God is the one who gives life and takes life away. Genesis records the following. The earth was without void or form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Hovering, fluttering back and forth, oscillating. When you oscillate, you have heat, you have energy, you have waves. It's an incredible description of it. That's Genesis 1-2. The psalmist declares, You sent forth your spirit, they are created, bara, out of nothing. And the new, and you renew the face of the earth. Psalm 104, verse 30, a commentary on creation of Genesis. Amazing. The Council of um, Chalcedon in 451 declared, and I'm quoting, We worship one God in the Trinity, in the Trinity in unity. We distinguish among the persons, but we do not divide the substance. The entire three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with one another so that we worship complete unity in trinity and trinity in unity the formulas throughout history have been accepted written down they are a commentary of what is revealed in the scriptures apart from the scriptures their definition means nothing is the scriptures that gives validity and value to their definition. And so the scriptures declare to us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all co-equal. Okay? The different positions never means inferiority. It means efficiency. For what? For the redemption of man and the world. Second, the scriptures declare that each person is God. Remember, all three are eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and all three were involved in creation. Should we then be surprised or even doubt that each person is God? It follows that they have to be. The Epistle of Paul, in um, his opening salutations and greetings, has this. God the Father... Or God, our Father, as you read the epistles of Paul. The other epistles, if not in their opening salutations, do so in their epistles. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes the and includes the two persons as God when it refers to God, various scriptures. Paul declared to the Corinthians, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.3. Paul the Apostle 
He says, not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ, God the Father who raised him from the dead. Galatians 1.1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.2. Clearly, he's declaring the Father to be God. And in some of those texts, the implication also by the grammar is that Jesus is also God. And what should we say about the testimony of the Father being God in many of the studies that we've already seen? And what about as we are overlapping sometimes the nature of God and the attributes of God? Now, Jesus is also declared God through the New Testament. Okay. Um, John. In John twenty twenty eight. He records for us the event of Thomas as he touched the hands of Jesus and he declared, my Lord and my God. He said, I will not believe unless I touch his hands, the prince in his hands and the side. My Lord and my God. He calls Jesus God. Titus 2.13 declares that we are looking for that blessed hope and the great God in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Calls him God. In Hebrews 1.8, the author of Hebrews tells us, but to the Son, he says, to the Son, the Father says, he is the Father. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So the father is having a conversation with the son in Hebrews 1.8, and he's quoting Psalm 45.6. You have a conversation between the father and the son, both God. John the Beloved declared, and we know that the son of God is come. This is the true God and eternal life. 1 John 5.20. So he makes him the son of God. True God and eternal. Three ways. In John 1, 1, the Gospel of John begins with the proclamation that Jesus is God incarnate. He became man. John says that the word was from the beginning, alluding to the eternal existence of the word. John then tells us that the word was with God, distinguishing between the word and God, identifying for us two persons. You can't be alone if you're with someone, okay? <laughs> the word with in the Greek means facing. So the one person, the word, was literally facing God the Father. John tells us one more thing about whoever this word is. That the word was God. Literally in the Greek, God was the word. Very, very clear. So to say that Jesus was not God in human flesh is completely to contradict the revelation of God. Jehovah Witnesses do that. Um, Mormons do that, um, and other cults. John says in John 
1.14, that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But a body you have prepared for me, Hebrews 10.5 says. That's the incarnation. To do your will, Lord, in the bottom of the book is written of me. Paul declared to the Galatians, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth a son born of a woman under the law. God cannot be any more than God, but he became less than God. He became man. Being God, he became man. And being man, he was God. And when he did all that he did, he did it as man, the last Adam, depending on his father, God. Last Adam, identical to the first Adam. First Adam failed, last Adam would not fail. Thank God. Paul told Timothy that without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested, listen carefully. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. 1 Timothy 3.16. It can't be said any clearer than that. That's the whole dissension, the whole incarnation, and the glorification. John 10.30. Finally, John tells us that the only one who has seen God is the one who was facing God, being in the bosom of the Father, and he alone can reveal the Father. I and the Father are one, John 10.30. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I came to reveal the Father, John 14. Nine, and other passages too. Jesus said, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. John six thirty three and 35. He came to his own. His own received him not. The Jews. The Jews were very familiar with the historical background of the Old Testament. The manna that came down from heaven. And God fed them for 40 years. The minute they crossed the promised land, it ceased. Jesus says, I'm that bread from heaven. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament showbread. And the word in the old King James, showbread, the bread that's on the table of uh, bread, is literally bread of the face. What did John 1, 1 say? Facing God. <laughs> the confirmation is through the scriptures over and over and over again. Now, the Holy Spirit also is called God in both Testaments. The Holy Spirit is called God directly and indirectly by his inner relationship with the Father and the Son. Um, in Acts 5, 3 through 4, the Holy Spirit is called God there as a, the Apostle Peter is dealing with 
Ananiah and Sapphira, the husband and wife. He declares, you have not lied unto man, but you've lied unto God. As you know, they, um, they had sold some property and they um, said they had given all. Now, Peter talked them, they, they, they didn't need to give anything. They, they weren't required to give all of it. That's not why God struck them dead. It's because they wanted to give the appearance that they had given all. And as you know, he got struck first and then her also. But here, there he says, you have not lied unto man, but unto God. And just previous to that, he says the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit of God, he calls God there. They lied unto the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they were lying to God. Throughout the scriptures, you will read um, such statements as the following. The Spirit of the Lord, Isaiah 40, verse 13. My Spirit, Isaiah 42, 1. The Spirit of God, Genesis 1, 2. The Spirit of Yahweh, Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Living God, 2 Corinthians 3, 3. The Spirit of Christ, Romans 8, 9. The Spirit of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, 9. The Spirit of Holiness, Romans 1, 4. The Spirit of Truth, John 14, 26 and 16, 13. The Spirit of Life, Romans 8, 2. The Spirit of Glory, 1 Peter 4, 14. The Eternal Spirit, Hebrews 9, 14. And the Spirit of Grace, Hebrews 10, 29. Pretty much, God eternal, all the way. The Holy Spirit is a person. For we are told that He speaks, testifies, teaches, intercedes, guides, ordains, works miracles, reproves, regenerates, prays, searches, loves, wills, and is sensitive. He can be grieved. Wow. A person. It's not a force. It's not a power. He's a person. We're also told that he can be resisted, grieved, quenched, and blasphemed. And the warnings are very, very clear. Even as God is absolute one, he is absolute three. Even as he is one in nature, he is tri-personal, three infinite and eternally existing centers of self-consciousness and each being God. That's the Wesleyan theological commentary. Very, very clear. Three persons, one God. So the scriptures declare to each of us that each one of those persons is God in and of themselves. They hold all the same attributes. Third is that the scriptures declare the purposes of the three persons 
of the Godhead. They're summed up in the word one. There are three distinct persons, yet one God, co-equal, co-eternal, but throughout the scriptures they are altered one for the other and interrelated in such a way that it is difficult at times to know whether it is the Father or the Son. That's how intricately tied together they are. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Yet there's two persons. He's saying we are identical. The same nature, the same mind, the same purposes. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You can't mistake in them. You would never see any distinction. Now, sometimes you see a father and a son, and they're just so identical, you can't believe it. It's kind of scary. Or a daughter and a mother. But at other times, you know, the guy will say, yeah, that's my dad. Are you kidding? I mean, you would never put them together. It's those genes way back there, different than ancestors. You know, they go back there. I came not to do my own will, Jesus says, but the will of him who sent me. He's not saying that he had a different will and he just submitted to the Father. He is saying we have the same will. I have no different will. I had no other will. We're one. Once again, Scripture interprets Scripture. I do always those things that please the Father. Wow. Which one of you can say that? <laughs> not I. Always pleases the Father. They are... Three distinct persons, yet interdependent. The Father is revealed by the Son, John 1.18. He has revealed them to us. The Father sent the Son, John 6.29. The Father testifies of the Son, John 8.18. And the Son declared the Father was in him in John 10, 38. But that should be no surprise to you or I because Jesus says the Holy Spirit would come in us and our body would be the temple of the Holy Spirit. But he also says there in John 14, 15, 16 that he would dwell and so would the Father dwell in us. So you've got the three persons in us, not just the Holy Spirit. We usually make reference to the Holy Spirit, but all three are there. Try to figure that out. <laughs> the Son came to do the will and the work of the Father. Jesus made that very clear in John four thirty four and 9, 4. The Holy Spirit speaks not of his own authority, but of Christ, John sixteen thirteen. The Holy Spirit never adds one word, never contradicts one word, never takes away one word of the words of Jesus. He merely reveals them, turns the light on, and gives understanding to the words of Jesus. So that's why it's important when you hear a teacher or a preacher or anybody else tell you something that you check it to the scriptures. If it's not found in the Bible or if it contradicts what's in the Bible in its context, then you know that it's not of God. It's not biblical. The Holy Spirit glorify and reveal the things of Christ 
not himself. John 16, 14. Once again, he is the silent witness of Jesus. The Son announces the coming of the Spirit in John 14, 10 and 11, 16, 23, 26, and then John 15, 14. Constantly, he's saying, he's got to come. I got to leave or he won't come. It is absolutely necessary, essential that I leave so he can come. And he makes that incredible declaration, um, he will be with you forever. Well, the context of that statement is not for eternal security and salvation. The context of that statement is, I, Jesus, came for 33 and a half years, and then I'm leaving. He's coming, and he's never going to leave. Because he is the regenerator of the sinner at salvation. He directs, he guides, and he's the only one that can convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So the context is very important. Calvinists will take it out of its context and violently abuse that scripture. It's absolutely wrong. The Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Both are set to send the Comforter. John 14, 26 and 15, 26. The Father's going to send him and I'm going to send him. But they're one. No contradiction. There are three distinct persons, yet there is such a blending and flowing of the Godhead as one that there is never any jealousy, envy, or striving, and such is the desire of God for us. When you have fallen nature, it's there. You got to fight against that. It comes natural. Jesus, in praying to the Father, said, I do not pray for these alone, speaking about the twelve apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, John 17. Verse 20 and 21. The Godhead has an order for the purpose of the redemptive plan. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians eleven three. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. God the Father. There is no inferiority. Whenever people look at the word submission in the scriptures, the non-believer, they equate it to inferiority. Never. It's a contradiction of the context and the indication of what is going on. Submission in the scriptures is always for efficiency, effectiveness. This hand submits to my head. Every time it gives an order. It is not inferior to the head. It is complementary to the head. It is not a head, so it cannot be compared to the head. For comparisons, you must have equals. 
the whole diversity movement of political correctness is a contradiction. It's a foolish definition. Diversity means different, not the same. You have to give it a new meaning and then teach everybody that new meaning so when you use it, they understand what you're saying. If you never taught anybody and you start using it contrary, people think you're crazy. So you've got to work up your worker ants so your little army understands your orders. That's the way it's happening. There is no inferiority, though there is submission by the Son to the Father. So if anybody wants to say that submission is inferiority, then in 1 Corinthians 11.3, you must conclude that because Jesus submits to the Father, the Father is the head of Christ, therefore Christ is inferior to the Father? Well, that's ridiculous. We've just proven they're both God. So again, you cannot take worldly understanding and fallen reasoning and apply it to the scriptures. The Father is not in any way superior to the Son either. We've seen they're equal. John 14, 28, Jesus said, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. How do we explain that? The greater is in the fact that Jesus limited himself for a set time as he occupied a body for the purpose of man's redemption, not that he was less than God. He had to veil his glory to take on the incarnation. And he limited himself for a set time. God doesn't age. Yet Jesus in his body, he was born as a baby, and he grew, developed, matured, and got older. As a man, not as God. Paul speaking, this very thing says in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. He just nails it. He says, Who being in the form of God, meaning Jesus, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, the Father, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, very important, likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, emptied himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus divested himself of all his previous glory, Never of his deity. This is what's called being in the form of God, an antecedental condition in the Greek. It means he was God before he came, he was God when he was here, and he was God when he left, and he's God right now. Now he can become less, he became man. He emptied himself of his glory. In John 17, he says, Father glorified on me with the glory which I had before the world was. He never divested himself of his deity. He didn't use it to do anything on earth. He did everything depending on the Father. That's important. Jesus, uh, praying to the Father in John seventeen five, said, 
And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself and with the glory which I had with you before the world was. There you have the commentary on what he did in Philippians 2, 6-8. He emptied himself of his glory. You remember him in the, um, the Last Supper? He was sitting down, and then he says he took his garment down, off, washed their feet, and when he got done, he went, he put it back on, he sat down. That's what he did from heaven. He, re- he divested himself of his glory, took on a human body, he died, he rose from the dead, and he went back and he vested himself with his glory again. Perfect picture. Completely. The priority of the Father is evident by the fact that he is always mentioned first. Have you caught that as you read the scriptures? The Father is always mentioned first. So there's a chain of command that is very clear. We already saw it in Corinthians. The the head of Christ is God, the Father, right? All this chain of command is for the purpose of the redemption of man, for the salvation of lost sinners. The baptismal formula reveals this in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Perfect order in their chain of command. The Father sent the Son, and the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. One, two, three. But the Father comes first. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we exist through him. The Father comes first once again. Jesus told the disciples, before he was betrayed again in John 14, 15, 16, he says, In that day you shall ask me nothing. You will ask the Father in my name, and he will give it you. So when we pray, we have a chain of command. We go to the Father in the name of Jesus. That's how we're to pray. I understand sometimes we go, Lord, does not, but there's a chain of command. We're to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. Jesus says, in that day you shall ask me nothing. Ask the Father in my name and he will give it to you. No inferiority. Father comes first. Son second. Spirit third. To the Ephesians, Paul says, God, that's the Father, placed all things under His, that's Christ, feet, and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Ephesians 4, 5 through 6. Three distinct persons, all being one in everything that is being done and purpose and will and direction. The Father is the source, the Son is the channel, the Holy Spirit is the agent. The three persons 
are clearly seen and identified, yet one God, one Lord, one Spirit, one Savior throughout Scripture. And so any attempt to refute the Trinity is really uh, dangerous. People ask me sometimes, do I have to believe in the Trinity to be saved? Yeah. If you believe Jesus is God who died for your sins and rose from the dead and forgave you your sins, if he's not God, then you're in trouble. Right? <laughs> we have to believe that. Tertullian wrote the following. I'm quoting. So also the Father is other than the Son, since he is greater than the Son, since it is one that begets, another that is begotten, since it is one that sends, another that is sent, since it is one that acts, another through whom action takes place. So you can see the distinction, the inner relationship, and the order of priority, if you will, all the time as you go through Scripture. And we should speak only as the Scriptures speak. We should stand firm on what God reveals because he revealed this so that you and I may know it. He doesn't want us to alter it. He doesn't want us to doctor it up. He, he, the Bible needs no improvement. Um, if you can bring God down to the human level so that a man or a woman can understand everything in the scriptures and about God, his attributes and all that, then you've just lowered God as brought him down to the level of man. You can't do that. It's impossible. If you do that, you won't have a savior. Because <laughs> you make him as a man, he'll be a tyrant. So the scriptures declare that the purposes of the three persons of the Godhead are summed up in the word one. One. So, as we have looked at this um, third and last study of what about the Trinity that reveals the nature of the Trinity as found in the scriptures, it's very important that we line ourselves up with it. The scriptures declare that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal. The scriptures declare that each person is God. And the scriptures declare the purposes of the three persons of the Godhead are summed up in the word one. And so, as you take your notes for the three studies, you have everything you need to explain to those who do not believe in the Trinity. And much more material that I didn't give you that you can add from the Bible. But you have a good background and structure in context. What the Bible teaches about the three persons of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we worship you. We thank you for tonight, for your goodness. We thank you for everything you do for us, Lord. And we thank you for just your goodness to us in opening our eyes and directing and guiding us. Lord, we pray tonight for those who are over the internet, Father, for the radio, and we pray that you would just deal with those who do not know you. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior,
or out there on the internet or the radio world. Jesus is God who became man. He died for your sins and he rose from the dead. And he sits at the right hand of the Father waiting to make intercession for you. If you will believe and acknowledge that you are a sinner. That God's wrath is upon you. That sin separates you from God. And that you are not perfect. And that one day you will have to give an account for your sins. If you don't repent of your sins. Jesus gives you an offer. That says if you believe what he says about you and about himself. That you can call upon him and claim the efficient work of his death and resurrection. That it be applied to you. Attributed to you. For he died in your place. He tasted death for you. And he paid the price for your sin. And if you believe that. That's faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. And you have all the right and authority. To call on his name. And ask him to make you his child. It's called a prayer of repentance. This is a simple prayer of repentance. If you don't know Jesus, you want to accept him. You're going to ask him to make you his son right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.